we continue in our installment here of studying God's Word from the book of 1 Kings. You may recall that last week we opened up seeing David in his old age and then Adonijah, his at that time eldest surviving son, plotting to be king in his place. But the Lord saw otherwise and he used the people of God, Nathan and Bathsheba specifically, to rouse David from his slumber and to see that Solomon was placed on the throne. And so now we come here to chapter 2 to see what happens now that Solomon has been named the heir to David. Let us now pray that the Lord would bless this, His Word, to our hearts and minds. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would use this, Your Word, that You would use both precept and example to show us Your will to show us the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Years ago, during an event, it was so long ago that I forget whether it was a a trial or an actual Olympic run, there was a track team from the United States. And the United States is always well-favored to win in track and field events, especially with respect to running both on the men's side and the ladies' side. And so everyone just sort of expects the United States to take home the gold in these. We're disappointed if anyone ever beats us. It's rare. And there are some things that can go wrong, especially in an individual race. You can go before the starter's pistol. You could stumble. You could lose your stride. But especially tricky is this event called the relay race. Because you not only need to be the fastest team, you need to make sure that no matter how fast you are, that that little tube called the baton gets passed from member to member. You can finish first, but if you finish without the baton, you don't win. Well, and this was one of these opportunities, one of these chances for the United States to shine. And the U.S. team was far in the lead in the middle of this race. But there came a critical handoff. And the unthinkable happened. The baton was dropped. And even though they were well in first, they wound up not winning because they weren't secure in how the baton was passed. Well, when it comes to a race, you can always shrug it off and say, wait till next year. Or in the case of the Olympics, wait till four years from now. may seem like a long time, but it really isn't. But when it comes to life, when it comes to kingdoms, when it comes to the kingdom of God, If that baton gets dropped, the consequences can be catastrophic. And so here this morning we see the torch, the baton of kingship being passed from David to Solomon. Not just being named the heir, but being officially 
the sole ruler of the realm. He is then the recipient of all of God's promises. He is the leader of God's kingdom on earth. He is the leader of the example for the nations. And so we see how God's kingdom is kept secure. It's kept secure by the Lord. But again, we see how He uses men and women to do that. And so what we will see then this morning are just two points. Not three, but two. The first is we will see the kingdom secured. The kingdom secured. We'll see that in the first 12 verses as David passes on his legacy to Solomon. And then we will look and see the kingdom established. So first the kingdom secured and then the kingdom established firmly under Solomon. Look now with me, if you would, at seeing the kingdom secured at the beginning of chapter 2. Our historian writes for us, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish His word that He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David knows that his time is short. And he begins by telling Solomon how a kingdom is kept secure. David has experience in this. We see later on in this chapter that David has ruled for 40 years. Seven in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. That's an awfully long time. For some of you who are a bit older than others of us here, that's like the time that's covered by the rule or the presidencies of President Bush, both terms, President Clinton, both terms, Bush the Elder, his term, and part of Ronald Reagan's term. Twenty or forty years, forty years long, David has reigned. And now he knows that his death is near. And he wants to prepare his son Solomon by telling him how the kingdom is kept secure. And the first thing that he says is very interesting. He doesn't say, make sure you have a good group of mighty men to protect you. He doesn't say, make sure your capital city has great walls. He doesn't say, make sure your educational system is fabulous. He doesn't say, make sure everyone has access to health care. He doesn't talk about any of these things that we think about in what makes America secure. He doesn't even say, make sure you have a good standing army to fight off your enemies who are hostile. You would think maybe David would. He fought many a war in his day. No, he begins by saying the only way that your kingdom will be secure, son, is by obeying covenant law. Obeying covenant law. 
That's the only way you can be secure in your kingdom, is by obeying the covenant law of the Lord your God. And so he says, I know my time is short. I'm about to go the way that everybody goes. I'm going to go the way of all earth. I'm going to die. Even though the Lord has used me and the Lord has blessed me, this too shall pass. And he says, I want you to be prepared for your ministry to God's people. Because you see here, Solomon is a minister to the people of Israel. He's not just a political leader, for if we remember our catechism, the Lord Jesus Christ is our prophet, our priest, and also our king. And so Solomon here acts as a sort of a deputy king for the Lord, king over the people of Israel. And so David is telling Solomon what he is to do at his death. This is a pattern that we see in the Old Testament. Moses does the same thing at the end of Deuteronomy. And ironically, the Lord does the same thing for Joshua that Moses did at the beginning of Joshua. Both Moses and the Lord come to Joshua and they say basically this. Don't be afraid because God is with you. Don't spend time focusing on all of the problems. Focus first on the Lord and on His faithfulness and what He has done. This advice goes to us as well. Even though we're not kings, it's the same advice that Paul gave to that church at Corinth. You know, the one with all the troubles that we just read about? Paul ends his letter by telling them to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith, to act like men. Sound familiar? To be strong. How do you do this? Paul explains that to the Ephesians. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. David's advice to Solomon is to be strong in the Lord and His covenant. But more than being strong, you must also be obedient. You must obey this covenant law. You see, the way that Solomon is to be strong and to show himself a man is to keep the charge of the Lord his God. Now, I want you to think about this, gentlemen, in our day and age. What makes a strong man? Perhaps he's a man whose wife listens to everything he says in his home. Perhaps he can bench press a Mack truck. Perhaps he can sell like nobody else can sell. Perhaps he's been a wise steward and his 401k is maxed out. No. The way you act like a man, David says, is you keep God's law. That's how you know you're a real man. When you have the opportunity to lie to improve your reputation, and you tell the truth. When you have the opportunity to steal and increase your security, and you don't. When you have the opportunity to deny the Lord Jesus Christ for your reputation and fun and friendship, and you stand your ground. That makes a real man. It's not the car you buy 
not the toys you have in your house. It's obeying and keeping the charge of the Lord. And notice how one is obedient. There's three things we see here from this language. His statutes, His commandments, His rules, His testimonies, as were written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper. The first thing we see is that the, the charge of the Lord is clear. It's found in writing. It's found in His statutes, His commandments, and His rules. The Lord doesn't leave us guessing as to what His will is for us. The Lord doesn't leave us guessing as to the way in which we find life and peace and joy. He lays it down for us in statutes, commandments, rules, and testimonies. But it's not just clear, it's also available. Do you notice that? You see, some religions may have simple and clear rules, but they're hidden away somewhere. And you have to go through a variety of very odd tests in order to gain access to secret knowledge. Not so the knowledge of the will of God. He lays it right out in the law of Moses. Right out for us. It's clear and it's available. But it's also something else that sometimes we forget. It is beneficial as well. Do you notice what David says to Solomon? He says, when you do this, you will prosper. Now, before you start thinking to yourself, wait a minute, Pastor Greco thinks I'm going to get a vacation trip if I keep these laws in Deuteronomy. Or I can upgrade from a Honda to a Lexus. And there are Bible teachers out there that will tell you that, that that's what that means. But what David means is something far more substantive. That your very life, your very soul will prosper by keeping the law of the Lord. Your soul will prosper in the midst of sickness, in the midst of poverty, in the midst of stress. You will prosper because the very keeping of God's law reminds you that the Lord is on your side and that He provides daily for you. He gives you your daily bread. This is David's advice to Solomon. And then he also reminds Solomon of the promise He says, you know, stability is anchored in obedience. He says, do these things that the Lord may establish His word that He spoke concerning me, saying. He says, if you want to know the stability of God's promise, it's found in obeying God's word. There's a wonderful illustration of this that I think you all know. Especially the children, right? The wise man built his house upon the what? Rock. Right? And the rain came tumbling down. And where did the foolish man build his house? On the sand. You see, the only way to be sound is to build your house on the rock of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's how your marriage is sound and secure. That's how your children are sound and secure. That's how your very life and breath is sound and secure. It's by being upon the rock. had an opportunity to listen to a, a, a song last night. It was just sort of trying to finish typing out some notes of various things for Sunday school and, and doing kind of by rote, not thinking. 
and listened to something, and there was a line that made a lot of sense to me. The man said, I'd rather have a shack on a rock than a palace on sand. Is that true for you today? You see, David is telling Solomon that that needs to be his truth. God advises us. God says the same thing in Deuteronomy 29 and in Deuteronomy 17. He says you must follow the law of God. He actually says that one of the king's main job description is to have somebody write him a copy of the book of the law and he's got to read it every day. The job description. It's a job description, fathers, for kings and homes. To read the word of God. It's a job description for you too, mothers, as you lead your children. To read the word of God. Obeying covenant law. Well, second thing that secures a kingdom is honoring covenant justice. Let's look briefly here at verses 5 through 12 because we'll see the execution, pun intended, of this advice later on in the chapter. But what David says is, you must honor covenant justice if your kingdom is to be secure. And he gives three examples. He says the first thing you must do is punish the guilty. He says you must punish Joab. You must punish him, and he doesn't say because he supported he supported. Adonijah. He says, you must punish him because he has murdered. And blood guilt is on his head. And it will be on our kingdom unless you punish him. Because Joab had killed two men by deception. He had feigned friendship. He killed first Abner in 2 Samuel 3 because he held a long, he nursed a long need for revenge. He didn't learn the lesson that the Scripture tells us that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Joab said, vengeance is mine, and I'll get it on Abner. I'll stab him when he's not looking. And then there's another man, Amasa. He had the misfortune of getting a job that Joab wanted. And so Joab walked up to him when they were about to conduct a joint mission... And he said, oh, my brother. And he came up to him to hug him, and he grabbed his beard, and he stuck him in the guts with a knife. Have you ever felt like that? You thought that someone was trying to befriend you or trying to help you? You turn around, and there's a big bloody knife sticking out of your soul? You see, Joab wanted what Joab needed. He didn't care about keeping God's law. The second thing that is involved with covenant justice is we don't just punish the guilty. David says, you must reward the merciful. And he says, this man, Barzillai the Gileadite, he helped me when I needed it most. And he wouldn't let me help him back. So I want you to protect and help and provide for his family. You must show that we honor those who have been merciful to us. This is what Peter talked about in the letter that we looked at about punishing the guilty and being praising those who do well. That's the role of the government. The third thing that 
Solomon is to do is to see that justice is no longer delayed with Shimei. You see, David had put off Shimei's reckoning. He put it off because of David's own sin. And he says to Solomon, you must deal with this man. Don't hold him guiltless because you're wise. Follow covenant justice. Honor covenant justice. That's how the kingdom is made secure. And then we then see in verse 13 how the kingdom is then established by Solomon. He establishes the kingdom, or rather, the Lord establishes the kingdom for him. And the first incident we see, now, these are several incidents that occur quickly, but I want you to see there's a theme that ties them together. It's not just various sections of the newspaper. The first thing that happens is Solomon deals with Adonijah. And the kingdom is established by refusing greed. The kingdom is established by refusing greed. Think about the context here of Adonijah coming to Bathsheba. Remember the end of chapter 1. Adonijah has just plotted to take the kingdom from Solomon. And Solomon, Nathan... And David all know, along with Bathsheba, that if Adonijah gets his way, it's curtains for Solomon and Bathsheba. And so, after a sufficiently appropriate time has passed, Adonijah comes up and he starts to chat up Bathsheba for a favor. And you can see that there's still a large level of distrust. Because Bathsheba, the first thing she says to Adonijah is, Do you come peacefully? And he says, peacefully. Now this word here for peace is a Hebrew word that most of you know. It's this word, shalom. And it doesn't just mean, hi, how you doing? It means, are things right between us? Do I need to be on my guard? Or are we right together? That's Bathsheba's question. So there's an element of mistrust here. That's the context for this question. And then he says, I need you to do me this favor. I need you to get Solomon to give me Abishag as my wife. Now, I want you to notice something. Adonijah just tried to be what? King. He tried to replace Solomon. And Solomon is known as what? The wisest man in the scriptures. We're going to look at that in a few weeks. Here Adonijah shows that he's the dumbest man in the Scriptures. I mean, if you think about it, it's completely foolish. You've just been blessed to get away with your head. And you walk up and you say to someone that you probably would have executed, you know, I need you to give me a helping hand. I want this woman as my wife. Oh, by the way, she's not just any old woman. She's David's last concubine. And I know there was this thing where Absalom tried to show he was king by taking David's wives. And I know that's pretty much how everything happens in this area of the world, that you show your king by taking the king's wives. But I really don't mean anything by it, really, no. Come on, Adonijah. He's seen through in a New York minute. But I want you to notice there's another contrast here. Solomon is told to what? Be strong. Adonijah shows he's a whiner. Look at what he says here. He says, I have something to say to you. You know the kingdom was mine. You know, before Solomon got it, it was mine. And all Israel flocked to me. 
He's deliberately exaggerating for effect. And then he says, in the understatement of that decade, and the kingdom is turned about. No, Adonijah. It's done a little bit more than that. You made a power play and you lost. So why are you trying again? This is foolishness. And notice another weakness in him. He's not even man enough to ask Solomon himself. He's got to get a lady to go and do it for him. He goes to Solomon's mommy and says, Could you pretty please get me this wife? What a contrast. Weakness and foolishness to wisdom and strength in Solomon. You see why the Lord kept Adonijah from ruling his people here at this point? He's proving his disloyalty by asking for this. And this is something that we need to remember, that character always comes out. You could put on a fake mask for a while. Adonijah did. But you can't hide your heart forever. It comes out. And when it does, if you've been pretending, it will bite you. And that's what happens here. Bathsheba understands this exactly, and she proves her worth. She does exactly what he asked him to. She says, well, if you really want me to ask, you'll get what's coming to you. She says, oh, by the way, Solomon, can I just ask you this little favor? Adonijah wants Abishag as his wife. If you don't think that she knows Solomon's going to explode, she doesn't know Solomon's going to explode, you don't understand, people. She knows exactly what's going on here. She is protecting her son and protecting the kingdom. Because if she kept it to herself, she would be keeping Adonijah's disloyalty to herself. So that's the first way that the kingdom is established. That Solomon refuses the greed of Adonijah. He says, you know what? If you want Abishag, take the whole kingdom. The Lord do unto me if you make it one day longer than now. And then the second thing he does is he punishes disloyalty. Look at verse 26. He deals with the people who have been disloyal with Adonijah. First he deals with Abiathar. And he says, you go to your estate. This is kind of like what he did with Adonijah. He says, go to your room. And don't leave. And by the way, priest, you're fired. You don't have the character to be the high priest of the living God. Go home. And he says, you know what? You deserve death. But because you have served the Lord God, and because you are a priest of the living God, I'm going to be merciful to you. Now, I want to ask you that question. Have you ever sat in the place of Solomon? Have you ever been tempted, when given the opportunity to be strict or to be merciful to God's glory. Have you really wanted just to be as strict as you can? I'm sure Solomon would have liked nothing better than to really let Abiathar have it. But you see, Abiathar had served his father. Abiathar had suffered with his father. He had had his entire family of priests killed by Saul. He was the only one that survived of his father's family of priests. And so Solomon understands this. And he sends him off 
to exile. I want you to notice, too, that our writer here is aware of what's going on in the big scope of things. For what does he draw our attention to? He says, This happened to Abiathar, thus fulfilling, verse 27, the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli. Do you remember? Eli's sons had been wicked, and Eli had stood by and not done anything, and the Lord's temple, or the Lord's tabernacle, the Lord's sacrificial system was made a mockery of. People didn't want to sacrifice because they knew it was only being done for the greed of Eli's sons. And the Lord said to Eli, you will not have the priesthood. Abiathar is on the line of Eli. God keeps his promises. Sometimes it takes 30, 40, 50 years. God keeps his promises. And our writer wants us to know that he's aware of that. Put that in the back of your mind because the historian here of 1 Kings is going to keep reminding us how God keeps his promises throughout the history. The third person that he goes after in punishing disloyalty is Joab. And Joab's a smart cookie. He hears the news of what's going on and he goes on the lamb. He goes to the altar. He tries an old trick here. Solomon's coming after me. I'm sure he won't come and get me at the altar. I'll grab onto the horns of the altar. It worked for Adonijah. There's only one problem. We already know that Joab is about as pious as a barrel or a dog. He thinks nothing of breaking his oath. He thinks nothing of shedding blood guilt. This is a trick. This is false piety. He expects to put up a pretense and to gain the benefit from it. Maybe you're acting a bit like Joab today. Maybe you're putting up a pretense. Maybe you're not grabbing the horns of an altar. Maybe you're going to a Bible study. Maybe you have a prayer group at work. Maybe you have a big gilded Bible on your nightstand that doesn't get cracked. You see, it doesn't help to pretend. God wants substance. He wants your heart, not a pretense. And so it doesn't help Joab. And the great irony here is, is that Solomon does to Joab exactly what Joab would do. You know the saying, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword? It's exactly what happens here. We know because we have First and Second Samuel that Joab would have no problems going in and grabbing the guy on the horns of the altar and cutting his throat. He'd have no problem at all with it. He's good with it. Joab goes to a town and he says, I'm going to sack your town. And they say, no, please don't. What do you do? He says, throw the head of the guy we're looking for over the wall and I'll leave you alone. He doesn't rep... He doesn't respect sanctuary. And so that's exactly what happens to him. And you see what our historian again tells us in verses 32 and 33 is that God remembers our misdeeds and our sins. Joab may have thought he got away with murdering Abner. He may have thought he got away with murdering Amasa. But the Lord knew and the Lord judged him. This is what the Lord does. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't forget, even though we may not. The third person, or the third thing that's done here, is loyalty is rewarded. 
The third way that the kingdom is established is Solomon, he does it by rewarding loyalty. By rewarding loyalty. Again, there's a positive aspect here in what's done. We saw first how he rewarded Barzillai. He rewarded for his, him for his loyalty of service to the Lord God. Barzillai knew that David was the Lord's anointed, and even at the risk of his own life, he obeyed the Lord. But then there's another group of guys who get rewarded. In verse 35, look. The king put Benaniah, the son of Joadiah, over the army in place of Joab, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. You see what he's done? He's replaced those who are disloyal to the kingdom of God with those who are loyal to the kingdom of God. Both Benaniah and Zadok took their own lives into their hands when they stood with Solomon and Bathsheba during the Adonijah campaign. And the way in which you establish a kingdom is not only by rooting out the difficult elements... But you affirm, you reward those who are loyal. This is the way things are established. You see, Joab was all about disunity. He didn't want unity. Abner gets in the way. He doesn't care if it splits Israel apart again. Abner's going to hand over all of Saul's troops to David. Doesn't matter to Joab, he kills him. Amasa is about to bring all the Absalom supporters back to David. Doesn't matter to Joab as long as Joab gets what he wants. But both Zadok and Benaniah put the group, the whole, the nation, the kingdom, the cause above themselves. And for that they are rewarded. The fourth way in which the kingdom is secured is perhaps the most interesting, unusual. And it's by rebuking presumption. We see that in verses 36 to 46. And this interesting man named Shimei. Yes, that's how you pronounce it. Shimei. Three syllables. Now, what had Shimei done? He had committed a capital offense. Remember our Old Testament history, our Sunday school lessons? He was the guy on the top of the ridge making fun of David when David fled from Absalom. He was up at the top of the ridge. Ah, David, you stink! You see what you did to Saul? Now it's all coming back to you. I hope that you lose everything. Now, what we need to remember is, doing that was a capital offense in Israel. We find that in Exodus 22. We find that in 1 Kings 20. You remember the story we're going to look at in several months of Naboth and his vineyard? How Ahab and Jezebel take his property from him? They get him killed, and what they do is they accuse him of doing what Shimei has done. Of mouthing off against the king. And so what happens is, Shimei does this, and he, David's troops say, just say the word, Lord, I'm going to go up there, I'm going to cut this guy down. And what does David say? He says, no. Not because it's not an offense, but David's cognizant of his own guilt. He says, I'm paying for this because of what I've done. How I killed Uriah the Hittite. The Lord prophesied this to me. It's that feeling that David had come over him in the passage that our song earlier this morning, Created Me a Clean Heart, was based upon. 
his repentance in Psalm 51. So David didn't say, Shimei was right to do it. He said, God must be using his wickedness because I deserve to know the guilt that I have. And so Solomon says, okay, what I'm going to do to you, Shimei, because my father was merciful, I'm going to put you under watch, under house arrest. You can stay in Jerusalem. Now, why does he say this to him? It's because Shimei was of the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe. And so what Solomon says is, I want to try and be merciful here, but I can't have you going and stirring up trouble. So you can't go across the valley of Kidron. Because if you do that, I'm going to know that you are trying to stir up trouble against me. You're under house arrest. And Shimei says, oh, you have said it, Solomon. Everything you say, I agree with you 100%. Sounds so good to me. And he goes. But then what happens? He loses a couple of servants. And you know what happened to Shimei? Same thing that happened to Adonijah. His character comes out. See, keep the promise. A couple of bucks. Oath before God, showing people who's boss. Well, maybe nobody will know. Maybe I could break my oath in secret. I'll cover my tracks. Nobody will find out. I won't be gone long. Have you ever dealt with sin that way? Well, it's just a little sin. Well, really, you know, I'm in Sacramento. Nobody knows me here. I'm up in my hotel. Nobody's watching me here. I'm in the house and nobody else is home. You see, you can't put sin on a leash. Shimei thinks he can. He thinks he can blaspheme the Lord, lie, break an oath to Solomon and before God, because he took a pretty good oath here before God. He said, what you say is good, as my Lord the King has said, so will your servant do. And what happens? He goes off, and surprise, surprise, Solomon finds out. You know what this is an example and a lesson of? Kids, if your parents have ever said this to you, believe them. If you do something and think, I won't find out, you're wrong. I will find out. Maybe not today, maybe not next week. It may be a month later, and I'll be talking with one of your friend's parents, and they'll say, you know... So-and-so and so-and-so had such a great time at the ice cream parlor. And you look and you say, ice cream parlor? I didn't know we were going to the ice cream parlor. I thought you were grounded that week. See, Shimei thinks he can get away with it. This is true. I know whereof I speak. I was small once, too. This is what happens. Your sin will find you out. It's so true, God puts it in the Scriptures, in the book of Numbers. He says, be sure your sin will find you out. You cannot pretend and cover up sin. So Shimei's old sins come back to haunt him. Do you notice the irony here? The cursor has cursed himself. He's given an oath that he's broken. And so he has brought his own curse down on his head. So what does this all mean? Is this just power play politics dressed up as a morality play, as one commentator puts it? No. 
I want to leave you just with a couple of brief points. The first is that we need to see that the Lord is in action behind the scenes. If you flip through this later today, notice how often the the phrase, the Lord will bring back harm, appears. Notice how often, it's four times, it's said that Solomon's kingdom is established. God is the one who is establishing it. He says it in verse 12. He says it in verse 24. He says it in verse 45. And he says it in verse 46. The Lord is behind what is happening here. And this establishment of Solomon's kingdom is not unlike the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is sure. It involves covenant keeping. It involves punishment. It is what we will see. But I want you to notice one last thing. Are David and Solomon perfect guys? They're kind of a mess, aren't they? Even what Solomon's doing here, it's not exactly on the up and up. He's fulfilling what God has ordained, but he's got his own motives in it too. And I want you to notice that this kingdom is established and is maintained not because David and Solomon are innocent, but it's because the grace of God is sufficient to deal with their guilt. They have guilt, but the grace of God is sufficient to deal with it. And we're going to see that as a theme that goes throughout this whole book. Every one of these kings is weighed in the scales of the law, and they are all found wanting but for the grace of God. Is that your hope today? When you hope your life is weighed in the balance, and I don't just mean for all eternity, I mean at your job. I mean when you look back at your children and grandchildren. I mean when you look back at the ministry that you've had. Are you hoping to just be a little bit better than the next guy? Or do you desire to have the grace of God so enter your life that God will establish His kingdom, not just here in a worship service, but in your homes, at your jobs, in your neighborhoods? That's what the historian calls us to. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this lesson from the book of Kings. We pray, O Lord, that You would meet with us not just this morning, but every day with this lesson that you establish your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. Amen. Amen.